0: i am struggling right now struggling with too many things i need to write immediately there's the play about my family the hamlet adaptation the musical set in a bar the one set in the woods the epic warplay eight years in the making and only half complete then there's the ones written but not done and that need more writing because rewriting is writing right Oh, and god, those plays that are done and rewritten, but not produced because they are probably not good enough and need more rewriting, I gotta write those too. These aren't problems you might say, but here's the context. I am aging. Every day I'm a day older. Every year I'm a year older. And I won't be able to write forever. There will be an end eventually, and what if that comes before I get all these stories out of me? There are only 168 hours in a week. A full quarter of that is spent at a job. Another 10% at a second job. Oh, and there's that third job that takes up a few more hours each week. Plus, I gotta sleep at least a little. I gotta eat a little, maybe clean a little, walk the dog. Be a spouse, be a friend, be a brother, a son. There's still time left after all that. I think at least a few hours, and I can get writing done with a few hours. But a few hours is just not enough because... There's the play about my family, the Hamlet adaptation, the musical set in a bar, the one set in the woods, the epic war play, eight years in the making, you only half complete. Then there's the ones written but not done that need more rewriting because rewriting is writing. <laughs> oh, God, the plays that are done and rewritten but not produced because they are probably not good enough and need more rewriting. And then there's the one play I just thought of about friends on a road trip to their friend's funeral. It's a comedy. How am I going to get all of this writing done before I die at a hopefully very old age? The Time Machine. I could invent a time machine. Great idea, Brian. Also, I wrote a play about somebody who invented time machines so they could travel back to solve all their problems. Crap. Now I think I need to rewrite that one too. I don't have to write everything, you might say, but I do. I have to write all these plays. Then rewrite them too. Why? Because I have to. I just do. If you know, you know, and if you don't know, you might never know. It's just a thing I have to do, and I will, or I could. Or I might, if not for that pesky time getting in the way, which reminds me, I gotta go write a play, okay? Love ya. Bye. Playwrights talk about whatever it is that make them tick. My name is Brian James Polak. This month, I share a conversation with Mac Rogers. Before we get to that, I want to ask any of you out there who haven't already rated and reviewed the subtext to go do that now. And if you're on the social media, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitter. Oh, I think we're on Facebook, too. Anyway, follow us and say hello. If you want to send us an email... It's podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to leave us a voicemail, the number is 505-302-1235. I appreciate the messages we receive and might use them in a future episode. Mac Rogers is an award-winning playwright based in New York City. He's the author of many plays for live theater, including Universal Robots, Viral, and the Honeycomb Trilogy. He's also the author of many audio narratives, including The Message, Steal the Stars, and the recently released God of Obsidian. We talk a lot about how Mac got into the audio format, which is a fascinating story. Actually, I find everything about Mac in his story about becoming a writer fascinating. This conversation was recorded June 30th, 2021, in the lobby of a Hilton Hotel in New York City.
1: I, this is, when I talk to other people, I realize how unusual I am. I figured out what I wanted to do with my life incredibly young, and have never ever changed in my mind uh when i was young i discovered the tv show doctor who and uh became instantly besotted with it and then from there spiraled out into other kinds of science fiction so at the same time as i was acting in children's theater shows i was also like writing science fiction short stories Uh, and then eventually so the writing interest and the acting interest eventually sort of melded you know, I, I started writing plays for my church youth group. I was I went to the Unitarian Church, It was sort of the the, the, the kind of the the free worship one. Greensboro, North Carolina had a Unitarian church, which a, a lot of locals were kind of suspicious of. There was sort of a oh, rumor going sure, around that we yeah. were like Satan worshipers. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, which I think they tried to correct by putting um, a bunch of different religious symbols on uh, oh, on the on, yeah. the on the on the big poster that was on the street—a a cross and a, and a Jewish star and all the and like yeah. they basically wanted to be like well, you could believe anything when you're was, but as a result I got to, I had a, a little bit of license with what kinds of plays I could write I couldn't go on full you know profanity or whatever but like I could so I I, I wrote plays that I I wrote plays that I put on with my uh, youth group church youth group, uh, comrades, uh, uh, fellow youth, whatever they were. Um, and, uh, were they sci-fi, uh, you know, when I or, first, or, in, or, you know, they genre. mostly weren't. When I first got into playwriting, I think I didn't, I think I didn't think you could do that. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't think science fiction worked in theater, and that was a, a misapprehension I had actually for quite a long time after that. But I, you know, I would do those, do, I would do those plays with the church youth group. Um, and the thing I always feel uh, very grateful about looking back on it is that I got to make the biggest playwriting mistakes, like the mm. most humiliating playwriting mistakes in front of the most forgiving possible audience, like the congregation. It was like one of the softest landings right, in yeah. the world. Um, and then, you know, when I went, to, you know, when I, time came to choose what college I would go to, uh, I, um, you know, I looked at a lot of places, you uh, but I, I picked the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill exclusively because when I visited there that weekend and I stayed with a friend who was already there, mm-hmm. he took me to see the, the Lab Theater, the LAB with an exclamation point, the Lab Theater at UNC Chapel Hill. They had a, this small black box where they put on, uh, a, it was a night of two, NX, two one acts when I went to see it. It was a Sam Shepard one act, Back Bog Beast Bait. And then the second show was called Over a Shoulder and it was written by Dan Coyce became my lifelong friend he's an editor at Slate Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and um, he's been a very kind supporter of my shows he
0: co-wrote The World Only Spins Forward yes about yes. with Isaac, America, Butler, yeah. with
1: Isaac Butler yeah yes exactly yeah yeah so he's so uh, I, on my college visit I saw and I was like oh you can do student written plays in here and I loved the um intimacy of the black box and I was like this is what I want to spend the next 4 years doing mm. it's like I think I I often think that I I actually made one of the most informed college decisions ever because I actually just went there and did what I the exact thing I thought I was going to do on my college visit. I was a horrible student. My grade, my grades, which were great in high school, my grades uh, completely uh, uh, just torpedoed in college. All I all I cared about was making shows at the Black Box Theater, um, and that like the what I what I did on my college visit is what I did the whole time I was but there. Isn't it Isn't that funny though? The uh, the point of college,
0: right, is train is like preparing you for. A a life uh, as an adult and this is what you did like you had but somehow grades are so important right (laughs) but you're a good example of the how unimportant grades actually are because you got to spend this time doing the thing you wanted to do
1: and that was your learning right you came out prepared to do that thing and i think it softened the landing with new okay we made some big mistakes early on in new york i mean some very big but but it softened the landing of coming to New York and self-producing because we had, the Lab Theater was an entirely student-run theater with a little bit of faculty oversight. So the shows weren't being directed by faculty. They were being directed by other students. Uh, um, they would give us a bit of assistance in terms of, like, some costume and prop pieces, but we mostly had to get the shows up and running ourselves. Uh, so... Um, I know that some some people who get into the New York indie theater scene who come from a more conservatory background, it's, mm. it's a bit more of a splash of cold water on the face where you get into the New York indie theater scene. When I started making plays in New York with two of my closest friends from college, Jordana Williams and Sean, Will- it was I knew it was, Jordana, it was Jordana Davis in college, but um, when I started making shows with them, you know we we. we, we we made a, we made a, the the first show we did we made some very big mistakes we did we did we, it was a show called Dirty Juanita that I wrote uh, I was it was um, about um, two guys living in an apartment in New York trying to make it you know sort of like this sort of, sort of super autobiographical. Uh, uh, type of plays that I uh, in college in college I got a lot of reinforcement for writing extremely autobiographical plays. There was nearly always a character who don't directly tracked with Mac, and uh, uh and his feelings and his travails were sort of the central focus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the show. And because the and because those shows I wrote in college were so raw, nakedly emotional, autobiographical, very indulgent, but in a way that resonated with the because the entire audience was 19 to 22-year-olds who, if they weren't if they didn't feel exactly like me, they were feeling at least, like, 75% of right, the same Right, so they connected. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they were, they, like, like they, the, the plays I wrote in college, you know, they'd be three hours long, three and a half hours long, full of t- tumult and emotion and right, right. whatnot, you know, uh, lots and lots of indulgence, lots of stuff that should have been cut. But I didn't... Uh, I didn't learn that there because people just loved it. I just got so much uh, uh, reinforcement from that audience because they were crying, they they jived with it, they they you know they understood everything I was saying. Like you know, uh, uh, if it was over long, they didn't matter because so much of it felt familiar to them or whatever. Do you think it helped or harmed
0: your development to not have that sort of pressure to like cut and change and? You know, like, did you feel like that? Looking back, do you feel like that freedom
1: helped you develop? That's a good question. I it's pr- I think probably it's a good mix of help and harm. Um, I, I I think I think the enormous amount of confidence that I felt when I moved to New York probably got me through some tough times and some a lot of confidence in my own voice. Um, that I sort of st- stuck with self producing and stuck with like a belief in my own voice that ended up taking me into the more genre place that I think would have been discouraged in, in a graduate school setting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think it harmed in the sense that like the first show we did in New York had, had to be a really hard lesson for me, a really brutally hard lesson for me. Uh, me and Sean uh, uh, played two of the three characters, along with as wonderful actress Judy Alvarez, who was in it with us. Um, but me and Sean played the two leads. I had written the play Dan Coyce actually directed it, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was like three hours long. Most of it was direct address monologues to the audience because I had just recently read The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn, (laughs) Uh, fell deeply in love with it, and and, and just loved the idea of direct address monologues to the audience because I was enchanted with them in The Designated Mourner. The problem, Wallace Shawn is one of those very Sui generis, very particular playwrights that you kind of can't be Wallace Shawn unless you're Wallace Shawn. Right. He's really not one of the easiest playwrights to imitate. Right. Uh, I do feel like he still has a very strong influence over the stuff I do to this day, but I've found that I've had to filter that influence through completely other uh, technical approaches because it's, it's really hard to imitate. It's really hard to make monologues as enchanting as he makes them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but uh, uh, so it was mostly direct address monologues. Play was three hours long. Uh, It was way too long. Nobody knew who we were. We had a handful of friends in New York. You know, actually, no. We probably had a decent number of friends in New York. We probably had about 40 to 50 friends in New York. Mm -hmm. But we... Booked four weeks at a, at, a, at an off off Broadway theater, one that I don't think does I think doesn't exist anymore, the Flatiron Playhouse. But uh, it was like inside of a building. You'd take the elevator to the seventh floor, and the theater was on that floor. And they wouldn't let you put posters in the wind, front window of the building. My parent, we had to hold the curtain for my parents because they just got lost walking up and down the street trying to find the theater. Many years later, when we did Universal Robots at the um, Sheen Center, I, I took great pride in bringing my parents to the front of the theater where there was a big like moving video uh marquee with universal robots by mac rogers moving across there was no no way you could possibly miss (laughs) it you'd never walk past that building uh, how far i'd come anyway uh uh, but you know we booked four weeks five performances a week 50 friends distributed over that is like nothing um uh we we hired a We ridiculously hired a publicist. A publicist can't do anything for you if nobody knows who you are. Mm -hmm. If there's no interest in you whatsoever. Uh, uh, We we got no reviews. We had many, many performances of just a couple of people there. Mm -hmm. And I was in the play giving direct address monologues and looking at them and looking at their bored faces. Like having to continue acting while looking directly into their bored faces. And you knew it at the time i could feel that it wasn't work i mean we, yeah. we had to keep our chins up We you know we sort of we told each other a little sort of like mutually you know diluted it's the kind of stuff you have the, the kind of stuff that artists do to get through a, a difficult run uh but i i did know at some level it wasn't working and it really hit me after it closed i definitely spent a lot of time in my apartment and sort of in just a very dark place thinking i just to say how could i have been so incredibly right i think of this as my i think of dirty juanita as my grad school yeah. uh i think because like that was like you know that's that was the ultimate school of hard knocks type of thing it was like i had to stand there and act while looking at the people that my own play was boring <laughs> and i had to, i that put me into some and i had to think long and hard and one of the biggest things i had to say to myself was like wouldn't you have been me talking to myself wouldn't you have been bored watching that play uh and i had to think long and hard about what i considered to be entertaining because like I'm sitting here writing these super long autobiographical plays, but when I'm consuming entertainment, am I watching stuff like that? No, of course not. I'm watching science fiction adventures Mm -hmm. and scary horror stories and thrillers. I'm not watching some other guy's super autobiographical thing about how girls don't like him. I'm not seeking that out. So why did I think that other people should come and have to take heaping shovelfuls of that from me? Right. Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, and that was the humbling lesson that I learned from that production that eventually started to filter in and sort of change the way I wrote plays. But it took some time to get that
0: message to sort of like seep into you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I did do a lot of, I mean, the, I think what what helped enormously after dirty one, it was that the next several productions that I did were sort of, it was a while before Gideon productions. I was the name. We, you know, we've it's, it's amazing that we're all still together, but we are, we are that we're all still working together. But, um, Uh, because we had that name Gideon production Gideon productions the maiden show was dirty Juanita by Mac Rogers Uh, and um, you know the next several things that we did because we kind of blew our all available funds on dirty Juanita thinking we were you know that was going to rocket us to whatever Uh, uh, the next several things we did were sort of like co-productions with other small groups of theater Uh, we um, were like little one acts that were parts of groups of one acts being put on by friends when i got involved with uh man the at this very sadly departed manhattan theater source uh i, I did i wrote short plays to be part of their of, of a number of short play festivals i wasn't able to do a full-length thing uh uh um for a little while i i, I and le- learning the value of writing shorter pieces one acts and 10-minute plays was extraordinarily helpful when I went back to full-length plays. Mm-hmm. Um, it was extraordinarily helpful to have learn some like deft touches like uh, touches of economy you know having to like figure out how to like um, tell stories faster start the scene later work off of audience assumptions a little bit or whatever we very nearly did go into production on another play I wrote with long direct address monologues. Um, and I suspect it would have probably also tanked horribly. Unfortunately, the thing that saved us from that was like one of the worst things in recent history. We had booked that play, uh, uh, in the now also now gone, um, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's another something playhouse. It's a theater that's now closed. It's like um, down near Christopher Street. Oh, the Grove Street Playhouse. That's what it was. The Grove Street Playhouse. We booked several weeks to do this direct address science fiction thing that I'd written called Mercurial. That was almost, it was clearly Mac Rogers writes the designated mourner. It was clearly like <laughs> right. his main, the main character was very based off me. Very, um, I had written it before Dirty Juanito and, uh. Uh, but in the second act of Mercurial, this play of mine that will never get produced, uh, there is a massive terrorist attack on New York. That we booked the theater to produ- perform it over three weeks. We booked a theater uh, in October of two thousand one. We had one rehearsal on September 9th, two thousand one, oh, and uh, 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 and so they uh, and so we we obviously canceled. It's like there's absolutely no way. Yeah, we, we talked about it back and forth. You know, it's like maybe we, maybe we, it's like we say it's super relevant, but everyone we talked to said, I can't watch that. I can't, I don't yeah. know when I'll be able to watch something like that. Yeah. Uh, it was a very, you know, obviously very different kind of, uh, there were a lot of differences in the specifics. I wasn't like prophetic or anything, but the the resonance would have just been Still, people said, yeah. I can't sit in the I theater. I remember that. In time, October yeah. 2001, we, we couldn't, we couldn't actually get rid of our lease. We ended up producing a variety show of a number of different pieces, including a, a play that I wrote sort of like a, you know, just sort of like a post nine eleven like healing play of some kind. I think, which I think was okay, but like we just ran that for a couple nights, along with like a variety show of stuff that other friends did, as like a fundraiser, a Ground mm-hmm. Zero fundraiser. Mm-hmm. But nobody came. I mean, nobody. We were on Grove Street in Manhattan. You know, that's West Village, way down south. No one was going out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we had a sprinkling of audience. Um. But, but so so what it meant was that the next time that I had, you know, I, I was forced to wait to do a full-length piece until I had learned a lot of storytelling technique from writing shorter stuff and admitting to myself the kind of storytelling that I actually like, which is genre-inflected, fast-moving thrillers. You were forced, like self-imposed? or I was forced by not being able to put up these these by by not being able to put up full uh, full length circumstances plays. forced you yeah yeah okay. yeah 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 um uh so yeah by, by the time we came back to it, and we you know when we, we did we dipped into a whole bunch of different stuff we tried to get into the fringe festival a bunch of times and we were turned down for a number of solo plays that i wrote we, until we finally got the idea it was like do, do you just have to write like Super, is, is, do you have to? Do we have to write a super silly musical to get into the Fringe Festival? Mm-hmm. And you know what? We will write a super silly musical, and we 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 wrote a super silly musical and got into the Fringe Festival. It was called Fleet Week. It was uh, uh, about a. Um, uh, it was about a, a group of uh, uh, it, was, it was sort of a gay on the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a group of sailors. They were it was like Which dressed like on the town. Yeah, it was already, <laughs> yeah. It was more, an overtly gay on the town. Yeah, uh, um, it was a, you know a big wacky musical. But at that time, everybody in the, the fringe was full of the post Yurin Gold Rush. Mm. We got to perform it in the Lortel Theater for five nights. It was completely sold out. Every single show. We thought we were famous. The very next show we did was a horror play by me at Manhattan Theatre Source. We had very sparse audiences because. It was that delusional effect of, like, oh, we're, we were doing, uh, like, a gay sailor musical in the Fringe Festival on Christopher Street at the Lortel Theater in August. Uh, uh, we, all the cast was, like, young, super hot guys. Like, of course we sold out every single chair. Right. Uh, uh, it was a completely unique circumstances. Nobody was there to see the book by Mac Rogers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but know? still, at the time, it felt like they were, right?
1: And, so, yeah, so we were like, oh, you see, you know... They, it's just, you know, my whole career, as it were, has just been this sort of like steadily escalating number of very small steps. Mm-hmm. Nothing's ever felt like a big break. Nothing's ever felt like I have arrived today. Mm-hmm. Every cool thing, there's, there'll always be like a little something to... Like, there 'll always be some problem on that same day uh, or there'll be some like setback or something like that. Everything felt like just like it felt like such tiny increments mm-hmm. that that nothing has ever felt to me like a big break. I'm mean, at the point of my life where I'm making a living off of writing for however long that lasts. and mm-hmm. I'll work to try to make it last as long as possible. but it, there was never like a sliding into home plate. Moment, There were a few moments that we mistook for that. For example, Fleet Week, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the musical. So there were We just had so many, Sean Jordan and I just had so many sort of like false starts along the way or things getting a little bit better. Um, and then they would sort of stay at that plane for a while. Um, probably the one th- sort of, I wouldn't even call it a breakthrough because once again it happened very gradually, a bit at a time. But our shift into genre storytelling genre type plays, mostly science fiction, but a bit of horror, a bit of some other stuff. Um, that's when we first started noticing that we were a crewing audience. That's when we first started noticing, okay, people who aren't our friends who mm-hmm. saw the last one mm-hmm. are coming back to this one. That um, I'd say it was probably going from when I first did Universal Robots at Manhattan Theater Source uh, and then did... Uh, I first did Universal Robots at Manhattan Theater Source. That same summer, we remounted Hail Satan at the Fringe Festival. So I had sort of two back-to-back things that were very popularly attended. And then the next summer, we did a play I wrote called Viral at the Fringe Festival. And it was like, oh, people are back now. Mm-hmm. People like, oh, the, whether it was me or it was Gideon Productions or whatever. The, the, but they were like, oh, we remember these guys from last time. were coming back this time. That was that was 08 going into 09. 09 was when we did viral. And that I distinctly remember. Oh, traction. Uh, uh, I remember uh, this is what traction feels like. Do you also think that you are just getting
0: better At what you're doing, uh, yeah, I mean, like the incremental, you know, mm -hmm. thing sounds like when you keep doing something over and over again, you're just going to get better at it, right?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sure. I have no doubt. There's like the, and I hope you know the the, the sort of a steady increase as as things go along, Uh, uh, and definitely. I mean a lot of the stuff that that people remember about and have a good time is just a lot of tiny technical things that you just get better at as you go Mm -hmm. along you know learning when to start the scene when to stop the scene uh kind of having that little switch go off in your brain where you're like okay this scene's been loping along for a while and it needs a little something something it needs a little top spin like Mm -hmm. uh, i need to bring in some kind of complication here and that isn't even like a conscious master but just like a little thing your brain goes no it's been the same thing for too long uh, uh, you need to start spinning another wheel. Definitely, I'm sure a lot of that was happening. A big part of it, too, was just I had started liking writing better when I, we shifted to genre stuff. Uh, when we did, I think the I think probably the first fully genre thing we did, I'm not really counting my designated rip ripoff play, mm. uh, uh, but was a play I wrote called Hail Satan. That was mm. a horror play that we did at Manhattan Theatre Source, which I, I should totally shout out. Manhattan, Manhattan Theatre Source was invaluable valuable to my development as a playwright in New York City. Just get, getting to participate in so many, just there was constant little short play festivals that you could mm, do a little something yeah, in, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and did just total faith and like in what I was doing. I just I had so many opportunities to hone things in front of an audience that you know felt like a community. Um, I, I was just very sorry when that closed down. Uh, it, it's funny, I'm sure nearly all of the venues that I'll be talking about in this conversation will have shut down. So far, it
0: sounds like you're like, Oh, this other venue, which is sadly. Yeah. Uh,
1: The brick is really, um, the bricks really the only one that I did stuff at regular. That's not, they 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 seem to have found a way to like I mean I'm not sure we'll to see what happens but they seem to have found a way to go through the pandemic with like a lot of virtuals mm-hmm. content mm-hmm. I'm never exactly sure what's happening with the secret theater in Long Island City where we did the Honeycomb trilogy first but um, anyway um we did this horror play called Hail Satan that I wrote we did a Manhattan theater source and it was definitely a feeling of oh I can do things like I can have a little I can have a little scary horror moments happen. I can actually have the Antichrist come at the end of act one. and Like that's the big end act one stinger. Mm-hmm. I've always believed <laughs> the, jo- the joke I always make, but I do actually believe it about when you're writing a two act play. I was like, inter- the, whatever happens at intermission has got to be so good that they would buy another ticket to act two. Okay. Uh, I was like I can't see, like, I like that measure <laughs> it was yeah. like the Intermission's got to make people go Oh fuck I've got to see Act 2 right, yeah. uh, uh, And so like that one is like I had to through really, the birth of the Antichrist at the end of Act 1 which is like something You totally don't think would even happen in that play up to that Point point. Um, and so it was, it was something that sort of clicked with that And the next year um, at Manhattan Theatre Source They had a bunch of we- they, Some show that rented a bunch of weeks Pulled out mm-hmm. And they suddenly needed to fill a lot of weeks and and they asked you know the the, the volunteers there the court membership Manhattan theater source we're willing to like work out really advantageous deals to fill these weeks because manhattan theater source was like any other indie venue as a hand-to-mouth venue right. uh, um, and I said I've got this play about rope I've been thinking about it for a while an adaptation of RUR mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. I said I've got this play about robots hadn't written a word of it yet they gave me dates and I, the whole thing was a calamity up until it opened, <laughs> uh, 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 because I just barely got the script done with enough time left. For I got the script done with an, with about two and two thirds weeks of rehearsal time left before we opened. It was it was a really long play, but it, I mean, this one I think genuinely deserved to be long because it was a giant robot epic about mm. robot, and it was uh, I originally just wanted to adapt RUR as it was uh um you know because i always like i was like, i'm getting into science fiction right playwriting rur is the definitive like the first sci- ur- text, text. Yeah. yeah 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 exactly you know people argue about the tempest or whatever but like rur is unambiguous it's science fiction you know right uh even if it was more like labor political satire by carl sure. Chopic's point of view but it's still it's you know um the but i read it And I admired it for what it was, and I admired it for the landmark work of art that it is, but I was like, this isn't me. It was very goofily comical, and then when the serious stuff came up, it was very heavily didactic, um, and the characters were all kind of ciphers, and the only thing I really liked in it was there was a big emotional scene at the end. I was like, I kind of like this scene... And then I want to write a whole new play to lead up to it. And I started reading about Karel Chopik's life, and I was so fascinated about like sort of this group of like politicians and artists and um, that he hung, that he hung out with, his close friendship with the president of the Republic of Czechoslovakia, Tomas Masaryk, who just, who was much older than Karel Chopik was, and a deeply religious man. While well, Chopik was not, um, and. Uh, but they still had this very close friendship because they agreed on some core things about justice and a, a better society that they could have. And so I was like, "What if we do a story? What about what if Corel Chopic and I changed his brother Joseph, who came up with the word robot? I uh, changed his brother to a woman. I needed to figure out lots of different ways to have women in the play because he didn't really have many uh, right, in his right. life. I changed it to Josephine Joe, as she's known in the play. Corel and Joe, they produce a play called The Drudges, which was his idea." what to call original idea, what to call robots. And the scientist who's actually making robots in secret sees the play, The Drudges, and says, I'm actually making the drudges at my house. If you can take these to your friend, President Mazarek, we can mass produce these and revolutionize the world. And uh, so, that, so I had the idea of mashing up his life with the events of RUR. And that was really kind of the play that within a small community, kind of made me mm-hmm. i i like i said we put it my sandy jumped in to help out a few friends jumped in to help out the actors all signed on for like no money it was the the whole production was just a complete fiasco up until opening because i was a bad director i directed it myself mm-hmm. uh i didn't have enough resources to hold the production together the actors had an extraordinary number of lines to learn had two and a half weeks they had to put together this whole epic story you know everything was sliding out of control we were just barely getting it done um it was very clearly going to be a disaster mm-hmm. and then it opened and the audience went absolutely nuts opening night audience went absolutely nuts at Manhattan theater source uh, um and by we we only had 2 weeks to run it there cuz that was all that they had, mm-hmm. you know given me by the end they were turning away huge numbers of people from the Manhattan theater source lobby it was one of those things where it's like um I was like, "Oh, this is what I do. I do giant emo- like giant emotional science fiction epics." It was like, "Oh, this clicks. Now what I want to do and what audiences want to experience are finally on the same wavelength." Right, right, right. Were you
0: did, at what point at what point did you step off the stage or did you step off the stage?
1: I still act sporadically. I mean, for most of the really kind of big splashy Gideon media shows, I mean splashy in relation, they were all they were all indie theater shows. Mm-hmm. Even the splashiest, the Honeycomb Trilogy remount in twenty fifteen, uh, which I have a funny story for about in a second. Uh, uh, but uh, the um, the sort of the biggest splashies ones, I eventually at a certain point pulled back because I was like, I I don't want I I don't want to have that audience eye roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, of um oh there's the playwright on stage acting in his own show i think that eye roll is kind of diminished over time but like when i was first getting involved in doing stuff i think there was um i think there was a bit of an eye roll uh, uh for that sometime not if somebody's like already has a reputation as an actor like wallace sean mm-hmm. but you know sometimes there would be a bit of an eye roll about it and um I just didn't I I didn't want that getting in the way of the reception of the play. I think a lot of times people think a playwright acting their play is bad just because they want to think that. Mm-hmm. It just it feels it feels like too much to say that. But like so so stuff like Universal Robots, uh the, the fringe version of I was in the original production of Hail Satan at Manhattan Theatre Source, but then when, when we did it at the Fringe Festival under much high higher profile circumstances, I was like, I'm gonna step back, let somebody else do the lead. Uh, I really wanted to do the biggest male role in viral but Jordana completely didn't see me in that role and the production was very successful so I mean Jordana was essentially uh, proven right. I only started getting back into acting uh, with the small Cincinnati shows that I do with Rebecca Comtois. And more recently, Kristen Vaughn has been joining us uh, where we we go to Cincinnati and do an hour long play that I write uh, because it's such a wonderful community there. And Mm -hmm. then we come back to New York and do it for a few days. It's sort of what I do for theater now that I'm so, so exclusively focused on audio. We don't me and my colleagues don't have the bandwidth to do the big giant Honeycomb or Universal Robots type plays anymore. But for those bigger ones, I just didn't want the audience to have that eye roll. And, And also at the same time, the productions were so amazingly hard and we were producing them off off Broadway. We didn't have union crews. We didn't have the proper stuff. So much. There was so much work that just needed to be done on the sidelines. The Honeycomb trilogy. When we remounted it, we did it as three separate plays in 2012 at mm-hmm. the Secret Theater. When we remounted it at uh, uh, the the this is for the, the funny story the Judson Basement, the Judson Gym in 2015 as a full repertory experience. Probably the greatest. Probably the crowning achievement of my life. but... In the lead-up to it, I was almost never at rehearsal. It was most of the same cast. So Jordana, was fine, working on her own. But so the set was so enormous. And all of it had to be painted with fireproofing paint. Mm-hmm. What I tell people, is, look, during the process of mounting the 2015 revival of the Honeycomb trilogy, I mostly just fireproofed pieces of wood. I was mostly just at my wife's scene shop painting mm-hmm. fireproof paint mm-hmm. uh, treatment onto onto pieces of wood. There was just so much behind the scenes work that needed to be done so many errands at trucks that had to be rented just an exhausting amount of stuff we were by the end we were sleeping like three hours a night uh but you know that production when it opened uh it was kind of it was, it was kind of like universal robots in 2007 lead up to opening night it was a fiasco everything was going wrong behind the scenes and then as soon as we started doing it for audiences it clicked and we ended up getting like you know a critics pick review in new york times amazing reviews in all these different places uh, the audiences got bigger and bigger and bigger. The 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 full the marathon days were our best attended. People loved them. People the emotional experience of going through mm. all three of the plays from two p.m. to ten thirty p.m. at night with a dinner break. Um, people would be so emotional afterwards. They'd be so uh, they'd be so caught up in it.
0: Have you had that experience of just being the playwright?
1: Just a couple of times.
0: Like, it's a world premiere of your play, and and you don't have to fireproof the set, you know?
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, in terms of premiere, I've only had that once. I wrote a spy thriller called Asymmetric um, that um, I'd originally done it, it as a series of short nights at the Vampire Cowboys Battle Ranch. Mm-hmm. We. um Then I eventually sewed it together into a whole play, and my company, Gideon, produced it at 59 59 later. But the premiere production was in Philadelphia, and um, so I made several trips out to attend, you know, rehearsals and performances and, like, you know, do rewrites and develop the play with them. And uh, so I
0: now did did you like being in that position compared to the person that is involved?
1: I guess I was. It's weird. I guess I was conflicted about it as much as like I might sit around grumbling. Why I haven't why have I had more of that? Like the truth is, it, it is a little bit weird not to be able to because every single time I've always been one of the co-producers, I've always been able to get my hands in. I was able to be there for the casting conversations. I was able to be there for the marketing conversations. I was able to be there for all this stuff. And in this, I wasn't, and that did feel a little weird. I did mm. feel a little lost without being able to get my fingers into all those pies. So to a certain degree, like when I complain about certain stuff that I haven't had at the same time, maybe I would, maybe I, I wouldn't have super enjoyed some of that. <laughs> I mean, I definitely feel these hideous stings of envy with play, uh, playwriting friends of mine. You know, like a, like, well, you know, They'll get some production somewhere, and there's po- they'll post on Instagram. Or something. There's posters in in, in train stations mm-hmm. uh, of their of their show. Uh, uh, I did eventually get sort of get that with Universal Robots. The Sheen Center did uh, put posters around Lower Manhattan, uh, but it was like, uh, but I was still I was a co-producer, and you know, I'm like, uh, or I, I've never, you know, or, or it's like to be flown somewhere to be, um, but it's by the same token. I haven't really written the sort of plays that would facilitate that. Uh, I've mostly written science fiction epics with really large casts. The Honeycomb Trilogy, only one... Th- this lovely guy uh, um, um, down in Texas, uh, uh, his, his theater company in a tiny town in Texas, they, he self-produced all three parts of the Honeycomb Trilogy. That's the only non-Gideon production. Oh, well, a college did the first two plays Is like a mm. college presentation uh, here in New York. But the Honeycomb trilogy is unproducible. It's only it's only producible in the equity showcase by a group of inquiry. Can, you, can good you
0: give like the the pitch on what Honeycomb trilogy is for anybody? Oh, I'm so sorry, know. yeah.
1: I must have sounded nuts for the last <laughs> half an hour. The Honeycomb trilogy is a series of three plays, all set in the same living room, following two generations of the same family, the Cook family. Uh, 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 the the father Bill, the mother Amelia, and the and their Their daughter, Ronnie, and their son, Abby, and the way in which this family causes and is caught up in an extraterrestrial invasion and occupation of the earth. Um, And the first play is the events that lead up to the occupation and the father's sort of collaborative participation in that invasion. The second part is that during the extraterrestrial occupation in which the daughter, Ronnie, has become one of the sort of a big leader of the rebel human faction and the the son abby has become a close collaborator with the aliens with the Mm -hmm. insectoid aliens that now rule the earth and the third play is set after the alien occupation has been largely repelled largely defeated and the and ronnie is now a fully grown woman and she's now sort of in the process of trying to figure out how to rebuild her, her little corner of Florida, and where, um, where you know, now that, and then some unexpected challenges arise having to do with the aliens, um, and all three of the plays, I sort of devised the concept with my Gideon co-producers, like, okay, how how can I tell an extraterrestrial occupation story but keep it all in one room, and and, and the and the way that it worked was to make that room the. To find a new reason why that room was the most important place in the world uh, in each play. I once had a friend of mine say, oh, I I got into playwriting recently, but I I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I said, why? What was wrong? She said, I couldn't figure out why everyone didn't just leave. (laughs) Like the, the, I had really bad stuff happening in the room where the play was set. I was like, if I was in that room, I would leave. <laughs> and and it was one of the most valuable things anyone has ever said to me as a yeah, playwright because I, bet, I was yeah, like, yeah. the reason people don't leave the room where the awful stuff is happening is what your play is about. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, uh, so in the first place is where this family lives but i wanted to have kind of like a pinter Albiesque esque i wanted it to be that classic american living room play but with some of those pinter and albie type subversions where it's getting more and more eerie what's going on in that living room with the sofa in it uh and then the eeriness, which in their plays often goes unexplained, is ambiguous as more of a thematic weirdness. This is actually explained that the dad is actually collaborating with his fellow former astronauts to bring a race of giant insects to the Earth that, mm. that they met on their on their last expedition to space. In the second play, my wife designed all these sets and did an extraordinary job. That living room is now a wreck. It is now completely. The aliens have terraformed the Earth to make it be like their world which is like heavily swampy and damp and humid and so so it's that same living room set but the sofa is all messed up uh my wife found this way of like painting the walls so that there would be this like super gross mold look like what a house would look like if there were no modern day cleaning products Mm -hmm. and it had been in the swamp for for a number of years uh and then in the third play the daughter who it does not have the mom in the first play the house is Mm -hmm gorgeously decorated because the mom has a lot of great taste or whatever but the mom was long dead by the third play the daughter has decorated the house with just like she's just basically trying to force the old world back into being by decorating it with like she's just got like an old macbook nailed to the wall and stuff like that (laughs) and a really tacky miami sign she's just trying to like make she's trying to futilely force the old world back Mm -hmm. and she has to learn the lesson that the human race needs some removal into a new way of living now that the old she's not going to be able to get the old life back. So that's sort of how those the, the so the the second the first play had the the living room Pinterest Albi-esque, O'Neill feeling. The second play was very much like a really dark version of like a Shakespearean comedy where there was like there's the commoners, the rabble rousers, the human resistance, and the aristocrats who are the the collaborators with the aliens. Uh, uh, And then at the end, there's a bunch of... The final scene has a bunch of marriages. But they're all quickie marriages made by a group of people who are about to go do a suicide bomb run. Uh, uh, But still, it has the shape of a Shakespearean comedy. The third play is is very much has the shape of a Greek tragedy. It's all in real time. Uh, It's all about the damage of previous generations inflicted on the next generation. There's a burial dispute in it. And it's all... um, and it's basically about the fall of a ruler um, uh, uh, through because of, of their own tragic flaws. And um, so my whole goal with the reason I deliberately aped those theatrical genres is my foremost goal with the Honeycomb Trilogy before anything else was I want these to be plays. I want to make a big, grand statement that science fiction belongs on stage and that it's not like people wearing the little bug and being campy about it or whatever, although that, that does have its place, but that, um, that science fiction can be expressed through theatrical forms if you just, like, think through how to do it. And, um, uh, and you know, but we're talking about three plays... Most of the characters in the first play die before the second one. Most of the characters in the second play die before the... So you're talking about three casts where there's very little repeating between them. Um, and they were... It was a trilogy from the get-go. It was it? always... yeah. Well, I mean, very early on, I had an idea for just the second play. I had an idea about you know a family in their house, and you gradually realize the world's ruled by aliens outside. But that didn't get very far before I realized I wanted to know before and afterwards. Right. So it was always conceived as a trilogy. When I pitched it to my Gideon colleagues, they immediately seized right on it, even though it was going to be impossible to produce, but we somehow found a way to produce it. But, and, and very bizarrely, I mean, part, I guess partly because it was successful, got a good times review or whatever, got good reviews, but um, Samuel French got right in touch with me in the latter half of the run and said, we'd like to publish it earlier i had tried to get samuel friends to publish it back in uh 2012 and they very understandably said to me and I, I, there was no hard feelings the per the, my contact there at that time said look i love the plays, but no one will do them mm-hmm. and i i just can't have stuff in the catalog that no one will do mm-hmm. uh and i was like uh, and she was completely Vindicated by what happened when they did publish it later on. Uh, David, oh, I so, have to owe an apology later. on. I can't remember his last name, but anyway, he um, he produced it. I said in a little town in Texas, uh, um, Yellow Lab is the name of his theater company, but um, but then nobody else. It's in the Samuel French catalog, but I'm sure everyone, even even science fiction. Even people with an inclination to make something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, cool, Alien Invasion play. Let me check this out. Oh, it's actually three plays. Between them, it's like 30 actors. The set has to be massively re-done every time. It doesn't work to produce any of them independently. It's like, the, What kind of maniac would create this play? Exactly. It's, it <laughs> is. There is no theater company for whom this is a smart bet. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I've, I've even had a few theater companies like... They were like, we love them. We don't know if we are gonna do a big reading. We'll let you know how it goes. We're gonna we're gonna get a bunch of people together and do a day long reading of the three plays. This is happened a couple of times. Yeah. And they and they get back to me later and so we had a wonderful experience with the reading, but we just can't. We don't have the resources to produce this. Uh, and, and it's the you know so uh, that was a very roundabout way of saying it. I can complain all I want about wishing that I had the productions that I I would have liked to have had around the world, but. Um, I wrote the kind of plays that made that largely impossible, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it, it was a wonderful thing switching to audios. Like like this, suddenly like tons of strangers will know about your stuff. But I made it hard for that to happen with theater.
0: So, but did this the thing because the things in in theater that you're talking about that are you know putting making making plays quote unquote unproducible, like the Honeycomb trilogy being described as unproducible did this influence a shift to audio because in audio there
1: is no such thing as unproducible <laughs> um well i mean uh, uh, partly it was from outside forces uh, I, I don't it wouldn't have occurred to me on my own but um mm-hmm. once again dan coys is just a really recurring kind of guardian angel in my life uh, uh the, the dan coys you know he's a, a culture editor slate um and um for a while, Slate was sort of spinning off its popular podcast into a sort of a, po- a podcast network called Panoply, mm-hmm. which, much like various venues, is no more. I really am the kiss of death, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but Panoply <laughs> is no longer. Uh, uh, but they they were looking for partners. They were they were looking for corporate partners to like bring some revenue into the into the Panably podcast network by doing kind of. Um, uh, podcast that would kind of serve as like promotional stuff, as like branding, mm-hmm. branded work. Um, so GE came along, General Electric came along, and they were like, "We want to, we want to start emphasizing our innovative technology. We want people to think of innovative technology just as much as they think of microwaves and washing machines mm-hmm. when they think about GE." Mm-hmm. And uh, and they said, "We so we want to, we want to have a podcast that." harkens back to the tradition of like the GE theater hour that used to be on TV. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how long, apparently Ronald Reagan hosted it for a while, but that's how long ago it was on TV, but there would be a live play once a week uh, uh, underwritten by GE, mm-hmm. by General Electric. And, uh, and they, they basically said, we, you know, we'll pay to make that with you guys. Um, and, uh, and we want it to be a science fiction story, a serialized science fiction story uh, about uh, a group of code breakers trying to solve an extraterrestrial transmission that came to Earth at the end of World War II mm-hmm. um, and Dan Kois was like oh I know a guy for this um, and uh he got me in the door to be interviewed by them. It happened to beautifully time out with when the Honeycomb trilogy had just finished there. So I was able to point to a raft of good reviews of a serialized science fiction story that I wrote. Mm-hmm. My day job at that time was writing, um, uh, was writing social media content for brands. So I knew how to like very subtly and non-obnoxiously work a bit of brand messaging into a piece of content, which is a big part of what they wanted for this. They wanted this story to feature some GE tech, but not be a GE commercial. Right. And, uh, you know, and I think I lucked out a little bit because, um, Productions got moved way up. It was called called the Message. The show was called the Message. Production got moved way up on it. I think for some reason they suddenly wanted to get it out six weeks earlier than they originally thought. I think as a result, um, I had to compete against far fewer people than they might have been able to. They might have been able to get like a bunch of like published mm-hmm. science fiction writers in for me to compete. But when they suddenly had to move the schedule. So many people talk about this in, mo- in like little breakthrough moments where I was right. like, I happened to be there when there was an opportunity. I was, I was like, I can start writing this right now. Yeah. And they said, we want it to be serial, with al- serial as in the podcast, serial with aliens. Right. So I listened to all of serial, and I got the tone down. Uh, and I'd been listening to tons mm. of audio because I'm a Doctor Who fan, and there's a lot of Doctor Who audio content, particularly from the big Finnish company. So I had a sense, and that, that had led me to discovering other audio stuff on the BBC Three and Four websites, uh, Radio Three and Four, and so I had been listening to a lot of audio as well. So um, I, I didn't have any training in writing audio, but I had a fan's training. Right. I, I'd been listening to tons of it. So. You had an ear
0: for it. And uh, uh,
1: yeah. so you know, I wrote the message. Um, and this is actually what I was talking about before. It's like when you talk about breakthrough moments, but there's always a little something that holds it back. GE had tons of marketing money f- to put behind the message. And also it was just caught on. It was very popular. I think we did a good job of making an entertaining show. So... it. Um, it, after several weeks that it, that it was out, it, it rose to number one on on the Apple Podcast charts. The day that it, this was uh, 2015, I was at a wedding. Uh, my My wife and I were at the we we were at the tape we were at the miscellaneous table where, like you know, they they try to put friends together at right, a wedding. Yeah. I can't remember whose wedding this was, but like we were part of the group that didn't fist. We were at a table mostly full of people we didn't know. I got the notification on my phone. My podcast, the podcast I wrote was number one in the country. It, that should have been a glowing, uncomplicated moment of unfiltered triumph. So I said it. Yes. Hey, Sandy, my podcast is number one on the chart. She said, there are charts for podcasts? <laughs> and then the other people at the table started noticing we were talking about stuff. They're like leaning over. they was like, so wait, uh, uh, what, what happens? You, you got some good news? I was like, yeah, my, my podcast is number one in the country. Like, what is a podcast? <laughs> I would go through the arduous... It's very hard to explain what a podcast is to someone who doesn't right, use... I would right. go through the process of trying if to explain the what question, they were. When I finally got to the it. end of the explanation, they would go... They When I finally explained what it was to each person individually at the table over and over, they would go, there are charts for that, just like Sandy had said. <laughs> By the time they learned what it was, they couldn't believe there were charts. Right. Every moment like this in my life has always had a little something like that right. to kind of it was like, don't forget who you are, right. don't forget where you came from. There's always a bit of humility. Just, just, just around the next bend, <laughs> uh, you're never hot shit. There's always a little oh something coming for that ass. Uh, but that was yeah but but i got into audio because of that job then i did another job the next year with panoply was so happy with the message they brought me back to write another one called life after i had a wonderful experience they brought in a british radio drama director real genius uh, john dryden is his name Mm -hmm. makes tons of and i learned so much from him both those shows ended up getting optioned by hollywood companies they were never actually made into anything but they were both optioned by really big hollywood companies which was a huge shocker at the time because i never heard of podcasts being optioned Mm -hmm. for Hollywood. Uh, um, For a situation like that, who owns the IP? But that was the thing. That was part of, that's kind of how Gideon Media happened. I was a writer for hire on those shows. I had no participation with any uh, subsequent version of The Messenger Life after that would happen. I remember I was called on my cell phone by a big deal Hollywood production company. And they said, hey, uh, we love The Message and we'd like to begin negotiations with you to acquire the film and television rights. And I was like, "Oh." I have to send you to General Electric. Uh, <laughs> I mean, nobody ripped me off. I knew this was the sure deal that from was the, the deal, but still, the feeling you must have felt. <laughs> but that was I went to Sean because Sean had worked in audio. Sean Williams, my co-producer, at Gideon Productions, for many years. He'd worked in audio for many years, doing uh, children's music re- arrangement and recording and stuff like that. Uh, and then the bottom kind of fell out from that industry because of the development of um of there being like recording uh, a software in almost every laptop, GarageBand, things like that. Um, and I went to him and I said, Could we do this? Uh, we were, because at that point, you know, we've been doing the Honeycomb Trilogy, Universal Robots. We were exhausted. It was quickly becoming clear to us that our aging bodies were not going to be able to carry heavy lumber into theaters that much longer. That the way we produced theaters was just, was, was just not sustainable for us getting older. I uh, said, so Could we do this? He said, We could absolutely do this. Um, and so we, we, we decided to sort of spin off. Uh, uh, Gideon Productions, which is a nonprofit theater company, into a into a sort of a, a related but a for-profit entity, Gideon Media, that that makes f- uh, uh, audio fiction content. And we were very fortunate that um, uh, a couple of folks who attended our plays regularly were editors at, at the Tor Science Fiction Company, uh, 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 Jen Gunnels and Marco Palmieri, wonderful uh, science fiction editors, and they were um, and. Um, Macmillan wanted to get into fiction podcasts and they were like we know these guys who make wonderful science fiction plays and one of them just recently wrote a couple of successful audios and they asked for a bunch of pitches and they we made the deal with them to make steal the stars which kind of put us on the map uh, uh, as an audio company well I mean it didn't much more than that right like, like this was like a hugely
0: successful oh yeah podcast I mean, yeah, really, yeah. like we had a it's, couple million
1: downloads. The most recent I heard was two million downloads, and that's old news. I don't know what it's up to now. Uh, it's it's so weird going from theater to audio. It's how qu- quickly the audience suddenly takes a giant leap uh, 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 because it's because it's recorded entertainment that will just be there forever. Right, people keep finding Seal the stars. I the whole my whole life used to be about desperately getting people in the door before it closed. The closing date was always the the, frant, the uh, cause of great Sturm und Drang. So like, how do I get a, a large enough group of people to come to a certain building at a certain time uh, uh, and stay there for a certain time before we're not allowed to do the show anymore? Now we yeah. make the show, it goes online it it just stays there, uh, uh, and uh, th- th- yeah, that's, that's a wonderful feeling. So I think more, it was more just like events that were coming along, but something was going to have to change because we were hitting a point where we were not going to be able to make the kind of theater we were making, lose money the way we were losing it hand over fist, and go through the physical strenuousness of doing shows that, without a proper you know, union crew. We just weren't going to be able to do it much longer.
0: I want to know how, uh, the impact of that podcast landed on you. Like what were your expectations versus what the result was?
1: Well, it, it helped enormously that we had done that, that, um, the message in life after it happened earlier. So I, I had a little, I had an, an inkling of what it was like, um, to, uh, you know, you, to have something go out to a much larger audience. Um, but what I didn't have, because I wasn't a producer on either of those shows, I didn't feel the need to really heavily monitor the public response to them mm-hmm. the way that I do when I am a producer. Um, I remember at one point I, went on, I was on Tumblr back when that was a bit more of a going concern. And I, I searched the Message podcast. I was just out of curiosity and sort of had the first, the first experience of my life of a total stranger. Someone I had no idea who they were. The head, the title of the of their Tumblr post was, "The ending of the message is smelly butts," uh, <laughs> and I was like, uh, uh, "And then, and, there was, and it was all several paragraph rant about how bad the ending of the message oh, like was."
0: to my friend's six year old <laughs> right that? <laughs> and it was like,
1: uh, and I, I I looked who the person was. I, I didn't have the faintest idea. This person was a total stranger to me. And it was so funny to think because I was like. If I had gotten into audio first thing in my 20s, I would have probably seen this and been devastated. <laughs> yes. All these decades later when I see this, I'm like a total stranger <laughs> right. wrote a six paragraph rant about my show. I never uh. dreamed that would happen. You know, I, I was like, the, my, my the theater just simply wasn't reaching. I mean, the people in the audiences, you know, they were friends and friends, eventually we got to the point of like friends of friends of friends or so, or somebody some on the outskirts of the art scene or whatever it was. But this was like a, some stranger who lived in another state, who I would never meet, uh, uh, and so. But um, I just came across that. But following the the social media response for "Seal the Stars," which I really felt quite bound to do, I really felt quite that I that I really needed to follow. We it was a fourteen episode show, so we were releasing episodes over fourteen weeks. So that, that's a long stretch of evolving public reaction to right. the show the basic the basic plot of seal the stars is that is that it's it's basically a, a, in a um, a uh, roswell type military base it's not it's not roswell but it's a fictional roswell type military base where the woman who runs the security detail there falls in love with a new person who's assigned to the security detail there they they're not allowed to have uh, uh, relationships working there uh, and they want they need to uh, run away together they decide to do a heist to steal the alien body in the basement of their base and sell it so it's a heist to steal an alien body that harkens back to those like noirs where like two illicit lovers were taking one desperate shot at having a better life those movies always gripped me like an iron fist uh, uh cause I love love stories and I love um people in really tight corners doing desperate things that they would have never done for love mm-hmm. um and um uh so early on, we just, this was the Alien in the Basement show. This was the military base of the Alien in the Basement show. So I think most of the listeners we attracted early on were people were like, I want to hear a bunch of alien stuff. Oh, yeah, I'm going to hear about some Roswell alien stuff. And then they got mostly a torture love story and crime story or whatever. As we watched the social media reaction as it went along, as we got, as we noticed who bailed out on us early, because they were like, what's all this kissing? Right. I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. And then the people who stuck with us and got more and more dedicated to the show as it went along, were like, "Oh, yeah, sure. There's an alien in this, and the alien does get pretty important by the end." But um, but when you, you're marketing, you really have to be aware of the minute-to-minute experience of your show. The minute-to-minute experience of Steel of Stars* is of a romance and a suspenseful and a suspenseful crime story that derives from that romance. By the back half of the show, we were getting we were getting more of our audience was older people. Was more, more of them were women. Uh, yeah. People were invested in the main couple. People who identified with the main character, Dak. You know, is in their late thirties, been around the block a few times. Played beautifully by Ashley Atkinson. And um, and we, and then finally we hit the point where we uh are you know they were keeping an eye on when the various reviews were coming out because podcasts are weird. There's no. There's no day that all the reviews come out. There's right, it's just right. scattered over a bunch of random websites forever. And someone's oh we we got a great review on a romance blog. Um, and I said a really I really embarrassed myself in front of a bunch of people who work in publishing. I was in a room full of like Tor Macmillan people. I said, "There are romance review blogs," and they all got very quiet. looking at me, and said, Mac, Mac. Do you have any idea how big romance is? Do you have, can you have any conception of the size of that market? Right. And Sean and I were talking later, we're like, we should have been plugging this as a romance from day one. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, one of those things, it's very it's very brutal to, when you have a mass media thing going out. With theater, you'll definitely run into some people saying some mean stuff about you online, but there's a certain cap by that's just the capacity of the room right. and how many people beyond your friends can fit in that room when it's when it's a free podcast that's all over the world and you're monitoring the social media reaction, you got to know you're going to see mean stuff every day. You got to be, you got to have your loins girded for that. And that's really rough, but you also see a lot of nice stuff. Um, and you also, but most crucially you learn a lot of lessons. So I think the impact of that was just sort of like, um, It didn't hit all at once. Nothing happens all at once with podcasts. There's no huge opening weekend. It's just like, you're just sort of like grabbing audience as you can go over weeks and months. People keep discovering it. It doesn't even have to leave theaters like a movie does. Mm -hmm. It's free, so people will just get around to listening to it when they can because they haven't spent any money on it. And uh, it's, it's more of an dribs and drabs of impact every single day instead of being hit by a typhoon. I was talking to somebody about, oh, I should talking to Wally about it. I was like, I was like, it's tough because there isn't quite a, as organized of a cadre of podcast reviewers. The, the people who do review podcasts regularly will get mad at me for, for, for saying this, and I don't mean, they do wonderful stuff. I love them. I don't mean to put them down, but what there isn't yet in podcasts is it the sort of an organized kind of like world of reviewers the way there is in theater. So it can sometimes be hard to get the word out about your show via reviews, but there also isn't that awful day when they all come out. There isn't that, and there isn't a New York Times of podcasts. There isn't a... Re- there isn't a make or break reviewer, and a yeah, Ben Brantley. There isn't, before, yeah. yeah podcast. There's no the butcher of podcast. Yeah, Wally actually thought that was wonderful. He was like, he thought that was all upsides. <laughs> he thought that was uh, he thought that was great. But the result
0: is, uh, you know, a year from now, you could get a review, yeah. right? And it will could slam, could slam it. I see on Reddit fairly, fairly frequently references. To steal the stars. Like, I'm looking for something like... Can anybody recommend something that is like this podcast that I loved? And I think I've known that this was yours for, you know, since you started doing it. And I think I get such a kick out of that. Because I'm looking at it like this theater person made this thing that has gone way beyond theater. And has touched people who probably have never even set foot in a theater before. Like, this is audio theater made by theater artists, but it's, it's for, you know, people who aren't just like the ones that are going to find their way to yeah. a seat inside a theater. And I just love that.
1: That's an enormously gratifying thing on my end as well, because there's, there's, um, a, 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 because a big thing about Seal the Star is almost, almost all of the cast is people that came to, that we worked with first in theatrical settings, mm-hmm. including Ashley, uh, uh, Jordana had directed her in a, in a friend show a few years before. Um, so near, nearly that whole cast was, and um, the sound designer Bart Fassbender, wonderful talent. Um, he mostly he does tons and tons of theater sound. He's a, he has a, uh, sound designs. He almost all year long he's doing theater. Uh, I mean, obviously not recently, but you know, I just theater sound. So he's a very big background from theater. Um, it was very much a group of of. Um, of theater artists, you know, uh, uh, making this audio and like this, this current season of stuff that we have coming out something that is very personally gratifying to me. I don't know how much it'll mean to like, you know, your average podcast listeners, but the fact that the five sho- of the, of the five shows we're releasing three are adaptations of plays. There was w- mm-hmm. Wally's two shows and, um, and then my show God of Obsidian, and then you know the other two are were built have been built almost entirely by once again you know people that we that we connected with through the theater community um, and uh, so it's very much it it feels it feels really nice to kind of have our first proper season our first proper launch of our network feel like a bridge season in a way mm-hmm. to feel like it has very strong roots in in theater to not to, to not sort of be brandishing some sort of pretense that um, oh well we've completely left that life behind and we're totally doing this now right uh, uh, you know that the, you know the, because we don't feel that way and we would love at some point to get back into making honeycomb sized shows it's just we can't really go back to that until we can, we're, we're able to raise a lot more money than we used to be able yeah, to raise can
0: you talk about and I don't mean in actual numbers but in a general sense how like you started Gideon Media in order to own your content. You made steal the stars. How does that get monetized?
1: Uh, the model we've done so far, and who you know, uh, who knows if this will continue to work. Or will, um, and but which feeds specifically into the reason to release this entire season ad free. Um, there was a, a couple factors that went into that decision, but. Um, uh, you know, obviously, the typical monetizing for a podcast is ads. <laughs> I remember running that by Wally <laughs> early on in our discussions. She's like, well, I, I'm a socialist. I'm certainly not going to be reading some ad in the middle of, you know, grasses of a thousand colors. Right, right. Uh, um, but uh, we're not—and, you know— but among the, the, the core getting people, we're not opposed to it. We put together a lot of ads we were very proud of for Steal the Stars. You know, McMillan Audio were the, were in charge of like courting and bringing in the advertisers and they would give us the, and we would put together the ads for it, which actually t- turned out to be quite difficult work because you want to make them sound like you're just you and, it would often be me and Jordana because neither of us were in the show right. and we would try to be bouncing back and forth sounding charming while working in some of them required verbiage or whatever. It actually took a bunch of takes and it was actually kind of a tricky thing to do and we actually were quite proud when we actually managed to land one of the ads properly. But the way that we've been working mostly uh, since then is um, it took a while. It took took a while for Steel of Stars to start bringing us outside work. Mm -hmm. Um, For a little while, we just thought it it came out, and then the last episode was out, and then some time went by, and we weren't getting other gigs. We were like, oh, okay, I guess we're just going to really just have to generate our own stuff. And then suddenly, tons of outside work started coming in because again, we had our theater brains still on. We thought Steel of Stars had somehow closed. It hadn't closed. Right. It was still right. there. Anybody right. could come across it, and it started like it started getting us a bunch of outside work. We started working with um, outside companies who wanted us to make. Uh, uh, Most of which I can't actually name because the stuff hasn't come out yet, and I apologize for that. But they, you know, they wanted to do audio extensions of like their TV shows, or this, that, the other thing, uh, uh, or are connected to like. Lots of people are launching multimedia worlds right now. uh, A lot of which spin off from video games, and so there's, you know, we've done some work like that. So we've been able to bring in a good chunk of money from um, from client work, Mm -hmm. uh, and that we that we then. Uh, uh, used to pay everybody. It feels so good to be paying everyone a living wage. Well, I bet. I bet. Uh, yeah. After, after, after a decade and a half of equity showcases, where there was always that slight, the actors were all very enthusiastic about being there. They all knew the deal ahead of time, but there was always that slight sting of shame of knowing I'm not paying these people a living wage. Right. Uh, but the anyway, so but we're you know, uh, so we've been funneling that money back into work, and because steal the stars actually was optioned for a time mm-hmm. and i was i uh, actually uh, the company didn't end up moving forward with it but they did option it and they did pay me to write uh, um, a treatment of mm-hmm. it so we did make some ancillary money off of steal the stars um and so we'd like to continue to pursue the the uh, you know trying to have a revenue stream from optioning coming in that you can't control that but you sure. know uh, uh you know one can hope and but so far we've we basically funded our own in-house work with client work and with money from like IP. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing having the IP on "Steal the Stars" because when we got ready to do like a big pitch, went up, and like some big name production companies got involved in trying to make a TV show out of Steel the Stars," and they, ultimately they couldn't find the right partner with the funding, so it, it didn't happen. I suppose it might still happen someday, but it did, did. But all these really big deal people got briefly involved, and I briefly was spending a bunch of time in LA going out on pitches, mm-hmm. and it was an extraordinary feeling. It was like they have to put up with me. <laughs> they can't kick me out of this room. I am the, me and Sean together, with the co-IP holders of Seal of the Stars. Uh, Sean didn't want to be involved in the pitching, but but still, if he'd wanted to be, they would have had to put up with him too. Right. They can't, but I went to one of the pitch meetings for Seal of the Stars and it happened to be the company that currently owned Life After. Uh-huh. I didn't even know about this. Nobody has to tell me anything about Life After because I'm not, uh, lovely people, very nice right. people. But they told me, oh, Mac Rogers. Yeah, yeah, I know your name. We have life after. And I was like oh and I actually sat there for a second like an idiot as if she was about to say and we'd love to pick your brain about it she didn't say that at all (laughs) and then after the pitch we were shaking hands goodbye and I said well I'm glad Life After is in such good hands and she goes yep and she walked off down the hall and I was standing there and I knew the deal again nobody ripped me off I knew the deal I knew how that's worked but it was so I wrote Life After all by myself in my broom closet sunny side apartment sweating blood you know the characters all felt like they were mine the way they would in any play, and now they just belong to these people to do something or nothing with I knew that was how it worked nobody led me astray but it was that was the first time I sort of felt it viscerally but there's also like
0: an intellectual component to that where you just you're like you own this thing you're trying to do something with it and I'm you're standing in front of the creator of it you'd think you might want to know something from this part, right? Like there's also that, that disconnect, which must be, so it's emotionally damaging, but confusing at the same time.
1: Yeah. I couldn't believe that she didn't want to at least like connect me with whoever was working on it or something right, like that. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I created all of those characters. I mean, GE gave me the very basic log line for the show, which was they like, they wanted ghostly voices, um, they wanted uh, for life after they said we want people for, who have died to suddenly be posting on social media again mm-hmm. um, and it died but i created every single character every single plotter and every single whatever i was like i couldn't believe that they, they just that they were just like oh yeah yeah we own that bye and like that they, they didn't care about it but that's that's i mean that's how it worked they they want to be completely free to take whichever sure. bits and bobs of life after they want and then completely craft their own thing, and because I didn't own the IP, they didn't have to put up with me. Mm-hmm. I loved that feeling. Osceola is like, "Oh, these people really do have to keep me around. Yeah. They have to take me seriously." You're not just a hired writer.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: uh, and so we hope that we hope that there will be more. You can't control that. You can't control sure, Hollywood sure. being interested in your podcast. Um, you can only just make the best podcast you possibly can, uh, make the best piece of audio storytelling you possibly can. Hope that you entertain people uh and that and that maybe it'll percolate uh into some of those spheres uh but so so far we've been able to kind of cobble along with a combination of client work uh ip money and using that to fund our own shows whether that will continue to be a viable model we'll have to see uh so much of the world of podcasts is making up as we go along uh, uh, throughout the industry
0: Thank you, Mac Rogers, for traveling from New Jersey to New York to speak with me. To listen to all the amazing work Mac and his partners have been creating, go to Gideon-Media.com. The subtext podcast is brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Thank you, as always, to Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre. Additional thanks to associate producer KJ Jarbo for editing this episode. And by the way, KJ is the best to work with. Super flexible and game at trying new things. She's talented, too. If you ever need somebody to help you with your audio work, you should hire her. Music from this episode is by Scott Holmes. The theme song for the subtext is by International Pen Pal. You can find their one and only album, including the song we use, on iTunes. Thank you for listening, friends. The play filling me up this month is I Fucking Hate Shakespeare by Gina Femia. Great play, incredible writer. Keep your ears open for a future episode with Gina.